0: Kids and animals, it's always hard to go on after that, isn't it? Fortunately, our focus is on the Word of God, proclaimed this morning, not on my performance. So I'm going to encourage you right now, invite you in fact, to find Joshua chapter 7 right now. We have been working our way through Joshua. And doesn't matter to me if you're reading it in physical form or on your phone with your thumb or index finger. It's fine with me, but I encourage you to find it. We are going to read the whole chapter through the course of the sermon in an uneven fashion. Can sound guys, can I go down just a little bit in the sound? I, I think I'm going to get excited, so I might get, I'm a little hot right now, so sound wise. All right, can you still hear me? Okay. Um, Joshua 7, let's read verses 1 through 9. And then we'll proceed forward. And we'll just say up front, it's a tough passage, but we're going to work through it this morning. Joshua 7 chapter verse one, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avin, to the east of Bethel, and told them, "Go up and spy out the region." So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, "Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few thousand or a few people live there." So about three thousand went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do? for your own great name. This is the word of the Lord. You know, there are thousands upon thousands of pastors and ministry leaders in this country who faithfully go and do their job week in and week out of proclaiming the word of God, of teaching it, of caring for flocks and of church communities. But every so often we have those high-profile pastors who fall from grace I can think when I, previous to being here, we served in Colorado Springs, and when we were serving in Colorado Springs, from every angle you could see the the blue roof of the biggest church in town, which years and years before, when it got to that big size, Ted Haggard had pastored it and had his fall from grace, and that was a big deal. You can think even just a couple years ago, Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, the tragic, Actions and moral failures of Bill Hybels over the years such a great and powerful ministry that he had been running and yet He ruined a number of lives in such catastrophic ways through his actions and moral failures You can think even recently this one was hard for me Robbie Zacharias and Posthumously finding out some of his indiscretions for years and years All these leaders tried to hide their sin from the world and hide their sin from God didn't work in the end uh, their ministry suffered and the mission was smeared because they sinned and then they tried to hide it, it wasn't the hiding, they sinned that was the problem, but they tried to hide it too which just made it all the worse and all the more catastrophic so too is the sin of Achan right here, he sins and then he thinks God won't notice it's a double failure We've been talking in this sermon series on Joshua about living God's mission as God's people, and that living God's mission takes courageous conviction. You know, conviction, that idea of what we believe. We actually have to live it out, and sometimes it takes courage to do that. But if we're talking about living God's mission in the world, individually and as God's people, living God's mission requires having an untroubled soul. I found, and we haven't read the last verse of this passage yet, but the very last verse, they say that, after all the they take care of the problem at god's command of achan and his whole family they named the place achor so you can see the play on words achor which means troubled achan had a troubled soul he was sinful and he tried to hide it from god we need to have an untroubled soul if we're going to actually live in obedience to god's mission that is a soul free from sin that's not walking in the midst of temptation into sin on a regular basis. Now, there's only one way that that can actually be accomplished, and that's through uh, Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. But there are some parts that we can do along the way to make sure that we uh, remove those temptations and try and live it as an untroubled soul. And I will tell you ahead of time that we'll take time at the end of the sermon so that we can pray for repentance and forgiveness so that you can walk out with a hopefully an untroubled soul. I can't guarantee it, but the Holy Spirit can. So let's look at Achan. Achan, this guy that we're introduced to at the very beginning of Joshua 7, he sinned. He was living a life of guilt and sin. He had a troubled soul. So let's just define sin, and we'll throw in a definition of guilt for free on top of that. Sin, the old catechism says, is all in thought, word, and deed, which is contrary to the will of God. I think that definition is as good as it gets. Sin is all in thought, word, and deed that is contrary. To the will of God. Guilt, when you add it to that, guilt is really just a descriptive term at its basic level. It's not a feeling term. Guilt simply says you did something wrong and it's your fault. You sin. Nobody else did it but you. And thus you are guilty. You're responsible for an offense that has caused a relational breach, is what that means, whether this direction or this direction. That's what guilt is describing. However, most of us, because we have a conscience, actually all of us know the feeling of guilt, right? We know the feeling of shame or feeling like you did something wrong or the burning inside of you when you need to confess something, but you don't confess it and you feel it working inside of you. That's the feeling of guilt. But guilt itself is simply descriptive. You did something wrong, you can't fix it. You need the other party to actually step in and work on the repairing of that relational breach. What was Achan's sin, then, if we're looking specifically? If you go back a chapter, Joshua chapter 6, it'll be on the screen, verses 17, 18, 20, and 21. It says in 17, the city, that's Jericho, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted, harem, to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, harem, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camps of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted at all the sound of the trumpet, when, or, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted, harem, the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Just as a note here, uh, before I talk about my throat clearing in the midst of that, uh, that when it says that in verse 21, they, des- they destroyed everything with the sword, every living thing in it, that's an idiom. That's a figure of speech saying this place could never be rebuilt there's certainly cattle or something could have gotten away in the midst of that but it's a, it's a way of saying they did what they were supposed to do obediently and this city will never be rebuilt again that's what that means Now I was as I was saying the word harem some of you, my translation had devoted things some of yours might have ban in your text um, that which is devoted to the Lord is what's written in there that Jericho itself was under it's the, the Hebrew word is harem, that which is devoted to the Lord, or ban. Um, it's only for God's purposes. And you can think of it at basic level terms this way. You can't lend out what is not yours. So if any of us decided to walk down the street right now and we saw a lawnmower in somebody's front yard, we can't say to the person across the street, your lawn looks unmowed, I'm going to grab this lawnmower and take it over and let you borrow it. You can't do that because that's not my lawnmower to lend out. Nobody can walk across the aisle right now and grab somebody else's phone and lend it out to somebody else because it's not yours to lend, right? It belongs to somebody else. You can't lend what's not yours. Jericho was devoted to the Lord. God had his claim on it, and it was devoted to the Lord because the Canaanites lived in opposition to God, they sinned, generation upon generation. This had been going on for centuries, that they were were living in opposition to God they were sinning if you want you uh, let's just do a little quiz what's the most well known Canaanite city that in the Bible is known as Sin City it's actually two names put together any ideas Sodom and Gomorrah most well-known of the Canaanite cities that's not quite a thousand years depending on how you cut it you're talking centuries maybe up to a thousand years before this happens and things didn't change from that point on the Canaanite tribes still lived that way to the point that when they're going to enter the promised land when Israel's going to enter the promised land the first time around before they sin themselves God gives instructions in Leviticus Leviticus 18 uh, we'll start at verse 24 but Leviticus 18 talks about all the sexual immorality that's going on uh, in the Canaanite cities and he says Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. You see, That's the problem. That's the problem in Canaan that God is fixing. Even the land was defiled, God tells them, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements, and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God." Among the Canaanites, you can look in Scripture, and if you do some research outside, you can see uh, a number of ways that they were clearly sexually immoral in a great many ways. They uh, worshipped Molech and committed child sacrifice as a normal practice. Uh, They certainly had a lot of idolatry. And they even had a sort of a parody of Yahweh, the one true God, that they had pulled into their pantheon of gods called El. That was sort of just one of many that they had pulled in. And they weren't without knowledge of this, we can see through scripture. Rahab obviously points to the fact that they knew, they were melting in fear. They knew that God was powerful and that God had called them to something else. You can see that throughout, even back in, in the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, there, there's clearly the opportunity for them to turn, and they don't, and they don't, and they don't god worked outside of israel as well god called israel as his covenant people to call the world to him but god obviously you can see places in the scripture where he's working outside of israel as well to call people to him he was doing that in canaan as well and they did not respond so when we talk about this idea of a harem that's god's holy war god is holy if there's one of the sort of overarching things we should get from the old testament on god's character it's that god is holy That stands out, not simply that God is love, that's important, but God is holy stands out over all the Old Testament, the the first half of the Bible. And when it comes to a holy war, God can fight this against Canaan because they've sinned against him and because God is holy. That's the first thing to understand. Only God can give the command for war in this case. God uses Israel for his purposes to do this, but it's God's war because they're God's enemies, not Israel's second thing we can understand about this kind of holy war idea the harem is that israel fights for god and as i said these are god's enemies but sometimes israel can forget that israel is fighting for god god is not fighting for israel we have to understand that when we understand what's going on in these tough passages and the third thing is because then it's god's battle and god's war and god sends the israelites in it's god's victory when it happens thus it's god's stuff To do with what he will so when Achan takes the stuff that they're not supposed to take whose stuff is he taking? God's whether they got the instruction or not he's taking God's stuff but they got a specific instruction and Achan specifically ignored that instruction and he suffers the consequences so we can talk about sin and its consequences as we look at the passage and we'll read the second half of it here in a moment but sin has consequences and footnote they're bad So let's read the rest of the passage, starting at verse 10. And it doesn't get better for Achan. Starting at verse 10, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward by the Zerah, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clans of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver robe, the gold gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Well, the effects of Achor's sin are rather catastrophic, would you say? What are the effects of sin? We can talk about the relational breakdown and all that happens, but if I were just to give four simple terms to it, I'd say the effects of sin, we can see it here, are confusion, blame, forgetfulness, and loss among so many other things. There's confusion among the people of who are we and what are we doing here? Why are we even doing this? Why are we obeying? Um, there's blame that goes on. We'll get to that in just a moment. There's forgetfulness about mission and purpose, of course, um, and, and then there's loss. Achan certainly loses. The people certainly lose. There are people that die in the battle that shouldn't have died in the battle because Achan, one guy was disobedient, and that affected the whole of israel they lost what should have been a win confusion showed up in the camp and confusion often shows up among a people as discord and as division Uh, just to give an example uh in a previous church i served um, i won't give all the details but i'll just say that there was a point at which we uh we were uncovering some sin that was going on in the family that was affecting some of the leadership and other people within the church. And we didn't know all that was going on, but you could, there was discord going on within the congregation. There was division that was happening as you had factions that were kind of growing over time. Because just one person, just one person was sinning in a pretty remarkable way that was destroying his family and then destroying a section of the congregation. And as we were unearthing some of this, um, there was one of our missionaries that went to the church who was retired and now home. We were talking to him saying, we don't even know all that's going on. We're not entirely sure what's going on. There's just this discord that's going on. His question, which he would get from the, the other historical books in Scripture, but it fits here. He said, is there sin in the camp? Is there sin in the camp? Which is just a remarkable question that we need to ask with regularity as God's people. Is there sin in the camp? Achan brings sin to the camp, and it brings discord, it brings division, it brings this blame, it brings this forgetfulness, this loss, this catastrophe that happens, and it affects all kinds of other people because one guy decided not to obey the rule that they were all supposed to obey. It was God's stuff, and he stole it. You can even see the the leader himself, Joshua, gets caught up in all of this too. Verses 7 and 9, they won't be on the screen, but I'll read them to you. Verse 7, he says... Joshua is laying there, and he says, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Does that sound like the previous generation? If only we had been content to stay in Egypt. Even Joshua was affected by this. His trust in God and God's ability is diminished. And even worse, if you look at what he says in verse 9, he says the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? God, as if he's blaming God in all of this for their problems. Achan's sin caused Israel to lose. It caused Joshua to doubt and even blame God for the problems that were their fault. It was their guilt not God's. If we're going to be people who are courageously untroubled, we can learn a few things from what happens here. If we're disciples who make disciples, we need to live God's mission with an untroubled soul and make sure that sin is not in the camp. How do we move forward towards an untroubled soul? Again, ultimately, this can only be repaired through the work of Jesus Christ in us, and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, but the parts that we can do ourselves to get there, or to to walk with God in the process, are this. We can call sin what it is. Right? Sin, one, if you name it, you start to take away its power when sin takes place in our lives. But two, we can call sin what it is, and what I mean by that is, sin is destructive. We don't want to call it anything less than actually the, the destructive force that sin is. Sin ruins your soul that's what it does and it typically begins as a rot from the inside that we try and hide from everyone around us you know not too long ago in our own neighborhood i know uh, somebody was arrested for um, i think it was just possession of child pornography of course innocent until proven guilty i don't know the the case of that but i can tell you that in other cases like that how does a person get to that point of looking at that of indulging in that. They get to that point because they indulge in other uh, forms of pornography and watching that that we as a culture simply call just an option and a choice, but we don't actually call it sinful and evil. And when you start doing that, when you start not calling it destructive and not calling it by name, well then it's only, it's the, then that, that person starts looking at it and we know scientifically it has a chemical process that it releases within a person that makes them want more and more and more and more and more stuff that's different along the way until they finally get to that point where they realize what I'm doing is evil and other people, this is quite illegal. The other stuff should be illegal too, I would suggest. But, but that's, the prog- that's the pathway and it can happen with any sin within our lives. That what seems innocuous and what we can call not that bad at first takes hold and starts to rot us from the inside out until we get to a point where we realize this is an awful thing and something's gone wrong inside of me and I can't hide it anymore. That's how sin ruins us and rots our soul from the inside out. God took drastic measures with Canaan, not without warning for Canaan, and God took drastic measures with Canaan and used Israel because God didn't want his nation of priests, Israel, living in the midst of cultural soul rot. He wouldn't allow that because they were supposed to call the world to him as his holy people, and he couldn't allow that. And that soul rot, that sin is contagious if we let it run amok. Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells us that we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there's no way we can accomplish that work if sin is rotting us from the inside out. That work is impossible. If that's the case so we call sin what it is it's destructive we name it the second thing we can do to make sure that we live uh, with untroubled soul is to make sure we flee from the temptation of sin as a college student at the time i was in chicago a couple friends of mine and i drove from chicago to the grand canyon to go camping one spring break got bad information so uh, we couldn't camp but we just hiked it for fun, and we did a day hike down, if you've ever hiked the Grand Canyon, you get to a point where it says, don't go past this sign if you're a day hiker, only if you're camping can you go past this sign, but as semi in shaped college students, that sign obviously didn't apply to us, so we kept going on a little bit further, and that's a long walk back up. And we made it before nightfall but not that much before nightfall because we went just a little too far and that's temptation right there we walk right up to the sign we say it applies to everybody but me and then we say i can handle this we walk right through and we blast through and we can't we heard part of james 1 this morning but james 1 13 through 15 just so we're clear on the the issues of temptation, James tells us when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? Death. Achan didn't take God at his word. He suffered the consequences. Literally, he stole from the offering plate is what he did. So the, the Babylonian robe, that might have just been a beautiful thing, but the gold and the silver that he takes were destined. They were supposed to take those for the temple treasury. That is, when they finally built the temple in the land, you keep all the important precious metals, uh, even if they're not temple stuff, but just the sort of the uh, bank account, if you will, of the kingdom next to the temple. That was God's stuff. stole from the offering plate. That was not his to take, no matter what. And he would have been set up for quite a while. That was well over a year's wages that he's sitting there with, buried in his tent. But why do we give in to temptation? Why does Achan do it? Why do any of us do it? We give in to temptation when we think the experience will outweigh the consequences. That's at a basic level, why we give in. We think, okay, I'm gonna enjoy this more than I'm gonna feel guilty about this. But we also give into sin more to the underneath that when we believe God isn't looking or we believe God will overlook our sin. And God is looking and God will not overlook our sin, as it turns out. God is gracious. Yes, He gives Canaan a chance, He gives us a chance, but God is holy. He won't let it stand forever. So here's a question to consider. When you are when are you tempted to or where are you tempted to cross the line right now in your life? Don't answer it to me, answer it to yourself. Where where are you tempted to cross the line right now? And how can you take two steps back from the line? So we call sin what it is, we flee from the temptation of sin. The third thing is we own it, we repent of it and we seek forgiveness back in the 70s carl menninger the doctor psychiatrist wrote his book whatever became of sin still rings true today we tend to rename sin to kind of pass it off as other things whether it's certain pathologies or crimes or passions right we tend to rename it so it it kind of tempers it we can just give into it and call it other things but that still doesn't it sin is sin it is what it is we can't pass it off as something else if we do something wrong, when we sin against others, when we sin against God, you have to be specific in repenting. You can't generally repent of a specific sin because then you didn't really repent. It's like somebody doing something wrong to you and generally apologizing without apologizing for the specific thing. Right? It's a useless apology. We see politicians do it all the time. You know, I'm sorry you felt like such a baby when I said that, or whatever it is that they say, but they don't actually apologize for it. If you commit a specific sin, you specifically need to repent. Achan, to his credit, actually names the sin in the end. But he's gone kind of beyond the point of of no return in his particular case. If you look at verse 20, it won't pop up on the screen, I'll just read it. It says, Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing, weighing 50 shekels, I coveted. He tells us exactly what he did. And sin, when it it lives in us like that, it leads to guilt, which leads to separation from God. It means we can't do his mission. It means something inside of us is wrong and is rotting away. I found this uh, encouraging word from David Oginde, this week a pastor in uh, Kenya. He says the greatest impediment to our success is usually not the many obstacles we encounter. The real enemy to living a victorious life, an untroubled soul life, is never the strongholds that Satan may hold against us. For as long as we are obedient to God's word, even the strongest barrier will have to give way. The highest wall will come tumbling down. The one thing that will most certainly spell doom to every effort we may seek to make on our own way to the top is unconfessed sin. With unconfessed sin in our hearts, we open ourselves and others to defeat. Sin must be dealt with before we can expect God's blessing and victory. Consider the depth of the sin that's there, too, in Jericho. At the very end of Joshua chapter 6, God asks for them to, they burn Jericho. I don't know if you've considered this week uh, what an ancient siege was like of a city, um in the ancient world when they surrounded the city and had it under siege for in in this case it was a week but it was plus because they were camped out for a while and people were melting in fear and probably stuck inside for a long time but if you have weeks or even months of circling a city under siege what happens in that city you've got to have food water and a place to get rid of the food and water uh, once it goes through your body right those are three very important things you're going to run out of food and water eventually that causes fear and if you don't have good sanitation because you can't get it out of the city that city's going to be in terrible hygienic shape when the siege comes and you can actually look at ancient archaeological digs of cities that were under siege for long periods of time and they'll see a burn layer because a conquering army would come in and say this place is uninhabitable after the siege and they would just burn it down The same thing is true uh, both because of their sin and probably because of the actual uh, seeds that took place. The city was burned. It was done. Never to be rebuilt again. Curses is anyone who rebuilds this place. And when we repent of our sin, we actually need to do the same thing with what caused us to sin in the first place. To burn it down. There should be kind of a burn layer in that historical part of our life where we've said no to what caused us to sin. And Yes to what god will do in us that's what repentance is to even avoid the temptation to go back there destroy what took us there so here's a question to consider where are there strongholds in your life that maintain a troubled soul where where do you still allow that troubled soul to be maintained because you've got walls up because you there's a siege going on around you but you won't let god really come in what needs to be released God to do a new work in you there's just no getting around that this is a tough passage it really is but if we understand the fourth thing that I wanted to point out about um, living in untroubled as with an untroubled soul is that we need to know God's heart it is a tough passage I think it's tougher if we don't understand God's heart and how God's operates and God's character if, if all we understand about God is sort of this cultural notion that we have of God as love, and the way we often use it in culture, that God wouldn't do anything that would restrain my passions and desires in me. Well, that's not how God's love works, actually. God is holy and loving at the same time. God does nothing immoral, nor can he, and he's not going to let that continue to stand in you if there's any chance to have a relationship with him, which is what we were designed for. We need to know god's heart living god's mission requires an untroubled soul let's take some time to pray as we conclude this and so i'm going to invite you to join me in prayer we're going to take a little time of confession or repentance it won't be long but um, i'd ask you to, to close your eyes let's do this together and, and let's remove any barriers between us and god that we could walk towards having an untroubled soul lord we come before you today knowing that your son Jesus Christ won the victory to release us from the power of sin and from the consequences and curse of sin in this world and in the life to come. We want to be your kingdom people. But God, we can't do that if we live with an untroubled soul. And so right now we take a moment in silence to reflect on sin that still lives within us and is unresolved. Lord, we name the sin that's going on within us. And we take time to lay it before the altar, in front of the cross, that you would forgive us of that sin as we lay it down, Lord. We ask that you help us in the action of repentance to actually turn from it and to even kill the desire in us to do it again so that we're not tempted to walk in. That you build in us the desire to not even walk towards temptation. That you build in us your own heart we ask for forgiveness. If, if you're in this room today or at home today and you've never asked for forgiveness from Jesus Christ specifically to become his disciple, then just simply ask for that forgiveness now. Say, Lord, I repent. I turn to you. I ask for your forgiveness to walk in faith with you. I want to be your disciple, Lord Jesus. May we be found faithful, God. Faithful to your mission. Faithful to your heart. Your people. Of grace and love. Of truth and holiness. Walking forward together. Disciples who make disciples. Amen.